Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Strange Familiars. True stories of the paranormal, cryptids, hauntings, the occult, mythology, UFOs, folklore, weird and forgotten history. Please make sure to like and subscribe to Strange Familiars on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you are listening. Please share the Strange Familiars page and episodes on Facebook and other social media. If you have experienced something strange, or if you know a story you would like us to cover, Email strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, and of course, strangefamiliars.com. Welcome to Strange Familiars, everybody. Before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. And if you go there, you can become a patron. You can help support the show. 
$3 a month gets you extra content. We try to do at least one new patron show a month. That's only available on Patreon. If you want to support the show more, we have extra rewards there for things like t-shirts, stickers, pins, and more. Again, you can check it out at patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. At this time, we're not taking advertisements. We're not supported or funded by any other source. The only support we have is our patrons, and we want to thank our patrons very much, as always. Without you guys, no Strange Familiars, so thank you. That's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. Woodnox, Volume 3 is out now. Woodnox, Journal of Sasquatch Research. The first two volumes were excellent. I was really flattered to be asked to be in this third volume. Both me and Joshua Cutchen have stories in there. I think my piece in Volume 3 of Woodnox, which is called The Company They Keep, is my favorite thing I've ever written on the subject of Bigfoot. You can check that out now. I will have copies of that to sell myself, but it is on Amazon already, if you want to go ahead and get a copy of that. And speaking of Bigfoot, there's going to be a lot of Bigfoot content coming up on Strange Familiars. That's just the way things are shaking out. I've gotten a lot of local encounters. People have called me up, so we're going to be talking about those when the time is right. I've been going on a lot of investigations locally. I was out at Michaud Forest to meet Some folks who had an encounter way back in 1985, I believe it was, met them at the location of their encounter. That will be coming up. I have got a show on the Pennsylvania gorilla flap of the 1920s coming up. So we have a lot of Bigfoot coming up on Strange Familiars, but we're going to do other stuff too. So we will not stop covering the other stuff. We've got some other interviews scheduled. Got a show coming up with Allison on skepticism, since I keep referring to her as the resident skeptic. So we're going to have fun with that, I think. Hopefully some surprises as well. So if you like Bigfoot as much as me, got plenty of Bigfoot coming up. If you like the other stuff, if you like the variety, we're not giving up on that. So stick with us. Got lots of different shows on the horizon. And there's a number of subscribers I'd like to hit for Patreon. And when we get to that number... I think we're going to go to a weekly show. So more encouragement for you to become a patron if you haven't. When we hit that mark, more shows. We'll be pumping them out weekly. But until then, catch us on our regular schedule every other week, and we'll keep bringing Strange Familiars to you. Tonight... We have Duke from World Bigfoot Radio. If you look up World Bigfoot Radio on YouTube, you'll find Duke's channel. He also does Montana Bigfoot Project. I first heard Duke, probably like most of you, on Sasquatch Chronicles. He and I have been guests on there together before. I think we did the Little People show together on Sasquatch Chronicles. And I was listening to one of Duke's recent shows on World Bigfoot Radio, and he started talking about trolls. And he made a distinction between Bigfoot and trolls. And I really found this interesting. I I find Duke's approach to this whole topic very, very interesting because he recognizes, as I say in the interview, kind of a whole ecosystem of these different creatures. Just because it's walking upright and it's in the woods, it's not a Bigfoot necessarily. 
And the reason I really like this is because it's much more in tune with the old folklore. They recognized many different kinds of entities that were in the woods from, you know, various nature spirits to monsters to fey creatures, all manner of things. And Duke seems unafraid to address the differences people report between these creatures, which I really, really like. I think it's important to note what witnesses are saying and not try to shove everything into one box. Welcome, Duke, to Strange Familiars. How you doing tonight? I'm doing good. Glad to be here. Uh, howdy to everybody out there listening. So you are World Bigfoot Radio is your show, and that's a video and audio kind of combo thing you do, right? Yep. So yeah, trying to be a little bit different than the other shows out there, and you know, because I'm friends with Wes and uh, over at Sasquatch Chronicles, and you know. You can't really beat him, <laughs> not at what we're doing anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. I just sort of figured, you know, instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, I'd do what everybody keeps griping about that nobody's doing, which is these audio shows are great right up, right up to the point where they reference a piece of video or a picture or something, and then you can't see it. And that's the difference with my show. If they're going to talk about something on the air, they're going to provide an image of it, or they're not going to be talking about it on the air. And that's pretty much the way I do things. Yeah, and it works really well. Last episode, at least the last episode that I saw was the one was entitled Troll. And that has some of the images. Uh, what's the guest name? I'm sorry, I'm blanking on it. That's Leo Frank. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nova and Scotia. That has some amazing photos he took of something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the real question is what is it? Is it an incredibly ugly, weird Bigfoot or is it actually a troll? And yeah. me and my other expert buddies leaned heavily toward, that's a troll. <laughs> right, and that kind of leads, well, before we get into that more, that's just a little bit about yourself. So you do World Bigfoot Radio, frequent guest on Sasquatch Chronicles. You want to give uh, people a way to contact you or tell anything else oh, about Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, you can, you, know, you can always leave a comment on any of my videos, on uh, World Bigfoot Radio videos on YouTube. I'm going to be moving to other platforms here. I don't actually have a support group for the show on Facebook, although I do have Montana Bigfoot Project, and I live in Montana, so, you know, anything related to World Bigfoot Radio gets posted there first, so if you're on Facebook, that's the one to go check out. I actually do a lot of field research, too. In fact, I'm working on a follow-up field research video right now for Paddy Canyon 7, and we've got a habituation area that we go up to and keep tabs on pretty regularly. I shouldn't say habituation. We're habituating them to our presence. And that's about it. We don't give them anything. Right. Um, but after over the course of three years now, they sort of know when it's us coming. And I think because they've been observing us, like following their structures and their trails around, that they've got hip to the fact that we actually kind of know what's going on. But I think they're curious about why we don't pester them any further than that. But generally, when we show up up in the area where we know that they've got presence, you'll get the uh, everything goes dead. There's no sound, no animals making any movement or noise or anything except their guard crows, which like to go flying up the mountain and make a big squawking as soon as you get there and let them know we're there. But after that, everything dead silent and creepy. Uh, last time we were up there, they were apparently not around because it was all normal forest, animal sounds, birds chirping, that sort of stuff. But you can really tell the difference when they are around there. 
So that's the other thing that I work on in addition to, to doing the show and having guests that are other Bigfoot researchers from other parts of the world. I do my own Bigfoot research. The, the video I was referencing is in September, we were actually up there, and mainly we go up to the area because they, they had tree structures up there, lots of them, and they change them all the time. And so we were documenting what they're doing in these things, and my buddy who was with me heard some you know, wood snapping and popping, cracking sounds and said, hey, it sounds like there's something over there. I was hearing that coming up the hill, too. And I said, you know, I'm, I was busy with the, the video camera taking <laughs> pictures of the structures that had been changed. And I said, well, just walk over there with your cell phone and see if there, you see anything. And I'd already told them that if you look at them or you point a camera at them or something, they'll, they'll try and hide from it. But if you're nonchalant and you just, like, stick your arm out with your camera and don't look and walk along and sort of just pan the area with it, might catch something well that's what he did with it and we didn't notice anything and we put together the videos like eight minutes long and it had all documented our day out there and all the new things we found and the trail that we found and all this other stuff and i was looking at it about three months later and all of a sudden i noticed in the corner of this one it's just like one second long of video there's what looks like this bigfoot shaped shadow and i'm like whoa wait a minute what's that so i go back and i put it on super slow-mo and i'm going through it frame by frame and i'm like that looks from every angle as he's walking past it, that looks like a Bigfoot. And then I showed it to one of my friends, and they said, well, yeah, it looks like one right there at like 3.5 seconds. And I said, no, I'm looking at seven seconds. What are you looking at? And he thought he had found another one there, and then somebody else that I showed it to found another one after that. So we had three potential suspects in there. So I did a video on that that showed all three of them. And now we've since been able to get up there. Winter's over and snow's melted. We've been up there twice, actually. The first time we went up there, we were up there uh, pretty much under the same cloud conditions, same strength of light, same time of day as when the original footage was taken. And we did comparison shots and video of it, which is what I'm working on right now. Suspect number one, probably a tree, because there is a tree behind the area, and so we pretty much ruled that one out. Suspect number three appears like there's a bush and a stump there which is probably what we were seeing in number three. Suspect number two, there's absolutely nothing there. I walked right down to where it was and behind it and looked around and we did comparison shots. And there isn't another tree like 40 feet behind where whatever it was was standing. And it wasn't clear enough for you to be able to tell what it was. And it was just kind of standing there watching him go past. But Bigfoot shaped and about 11 feet tall. So very creepy. Yeah, it's one thing to actually see them or to know that they're around, but then to find something that huge in the video like months later and go, oh, my God. <laughs> and that was what he was hearing, apparently. You know, it's even on video where he's, t- where he's filming the original video going, well, there's something making cracking and popping sounds over there. I'm going to walk over and see if there's any- I can see anything. And he's on this little old abandoned logging trail that's right at the crest of this sub-peak of Mount Sentinel and steep canyons on both sides. and instead of uh, actually looking over the side, he's just walking down the trail watching his footsteps so he doesn't fall over, and he's got his arm out to the left, and he's filming over the edge of it. Mm. And that's how he caught the thing. So I was in an area, it was a, it's a nature preserve in Maryland that has a, a particularly creepy BFRO report associated with it. And I just had a free Saturday one time, and I went down there by myself and was in one area and just started getting creeped out. And I just kind of randomly started taking cell phone pictures, just like you were saying. I wasn't filming. I was just taking still pictures, a series of them. Yep. I'll have to send you the series of pictures. It's pretty interesting. I, I haven't uh, showed it off yet too much because I haven't let too many people look at it. It's interesting. I'll send it to you and see what you think. 
Um, it, it's definitely. Yeah. My wife is a very big skeptic, and I showed her. Her words were like, "Someone was following you." I said, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, "That's usually a bad sign." But yeah. even the skeptics say that there's probably something there, right? Yeah, it doesn't look particularly squatchy, but it's upright and it's it looks weird. I'll send you the the image. See what you think. Yeah, I'd be interested in that. You know, it's it surprises me how often this happens where. People that really know what they're doing, researchers are in an area, they know there's Bigfoot around, and they're just walking around, they get a feeling there's something over in a certain area, or they hear something or something, they just they don't see anything, they snap a shot anyway. And they'll go back and look at it later and go, holy cow, how did I not see that? Look, it's right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Time you're there, you don't see it, but you look at it later, where you got time to actually study the frame and look at the image for a while, and it's like, whoa, how did I miss that? <laughs> there's a face right there or something like that, you know, and you catch it then. Yeah, this was absolutely one of those cases. It was just creeped out, so I'll, I'll, I'll click some pictures and, and look at them later. You know, didn't really notice too much else other than just being extremely creeped out. I hike alone all the time, so that feeling doesn't come upon me often. Yeah, yeah. Something to note. So uh, let me After a while, it seems like you get sensitive to it. When you've been around it enough, you can sort of, like, feel if they're around or... Maybe it's just, you know, your senses are going, uh, hey, there's no noise right now, you should be thinking, <laughs> or something right. like that. But it seems like after a while, you can be in the same area, and you can tell if they're around or not, just, you know, kind of by feel after a while. I wonder if it's not the lack of noise, because I almost use birds, as, and I want to get back to what you were talking about, guard crows, there for, you know, after this, but... As I walk, as I hike through the woods, I often use birds as sort of uh, my own alarm system. Like, if I hear birds, I, I know I'm usually pretty good. It's when everything goes dead quiet, that's when my ears start to perk up and I start to get cautious. Yeah, yeah, that's generally a bad sign. When all the animals are quiet, there's a reason they're quiet. Mm-hmm. Usually so, it's because there's a predator around and they're all paranoid. <laughs> so you mentioned guard crows before. Now, do you mean that literally, like they're trained birds, or that just that they're using the crows? Um, both. I think in a lot of cases they're really acutely aware of what the crows are doing, just like they're aware of chipmunks and things like that that'll sound when something is nearby them. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's a cue if they hear it off in a distance. Well, there's something over there. There, you know, the chipmunks going off, or the crows are griping about somebody upsetting them. And but you know, talking to Cat Hansen, who says they do on occasion use crows for lookouts. Essentially, they will train. You know, crows are very smart. Oh, yeah. And you start feeding them, you know, hey, go sit over there and anybody shows up, make some noise, and I'll feed you, you know. It doesn't take much to, for a crow to pick up that concept. And uh, it could very well be, and it seems to be the case of these ones up here because we can walk. There's, uh, there's actually a hiking trail that goes up to this crest on the mountain that we go to, and the trail turns to the right when you get to the top of it. And we tried it the last time we were up there. We walked up there and went to the right. No, no noise. And every time before that, we walk up and we get to the top of the mountain where the trail turned to the right, and we'd go to the left, and we'd take four or five steps, and the crows would go off. Mm-hmm. Now, the time before, the last time that we went up there, we tried to trick them. We went partway up the hillside and cut off the trail and went to the left. I actually kept walking up the mountain. I had Jeffy and his buddy Creature were, were just trying to sneak through on the left, and they got maybe a dozen steps through the small pine trees and stuff there, and same thing, one of the crows went off, flew right over their heads, over the crest of the hill and into the canyon on the, you know, the far side, squawking up a storm. And I got up to the top, and as soon as I turned off the trail and went to the left, a second one went off, and he flew further up the ridge line toward the top of the mountain. So um, 
kind of makes me wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you had any kind of intelligence and you were woodwise, it would make sense to use crows. <laughs> uh, train, train... It's weird. I've had friends that have actually had pet crows, you know, like a crow that was injured, fell out of the nest when it was a baby or something. They scoop it up and keep it for pets. They not only live a lot longer than people think they do, they're incredibly smart. It's kind of like having a black parrot or something. Oh, yeah. In yeah. fact, they're talking, they can talk, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the other thing that's kind of creepy about these ones up here is the, the one time that we heard them go off and fly over us, it was not only making its crow squawking sound, it was doing this weird monkey-like babbling intermittently, too, which was even like, where'd you hear that? Oh, that, yeah. yeah, that's really weird. You got the Bigfoots mimicking the crows and, and everything else. And then you and got the crows the... are mimicking the Bigfoot. Yeah, yeah. that's what I <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, that kind of really creeped me out. We got that one on uh, audio on one of the video sections where he caught the, the crow flying overhead, and it was like two crow squawks, and then there was this weird monkey-like babbling, and then there was another crow squawk, and it was a bird. It was flying overhead, but it's like... Where did he hear this other weird thing they started copying, you know? And that's on your YouTube channel? Uh, no, that part of that video isn't up yet. This is on the, the comparison video that we were shooting the day we were up there shooting the comparison video. We caught that. Okay, so, um, so this it, is the one that I'm working on now. It will be up at some point. It will be up. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I think I'll, I'll be, just so that it'll be easy for people to find, it'll be a Montana Bigfoot Project, Tree Peakers Confirmed. Okay. What I'm the title is. So if you guys want to find it, you can find that. I should have it up in a day or so. That's awesome. So one of the things I really enjoy about your shows and your research is that you recognize a whole ecosystem of these creatures, which is much more in line with old folklore. Now, I'm a, I'm a big guy for old folklore. I, I study it. I love it. I collect it. And in the past, they they recognized a whole range of creatures that were out there. And you are one of the researchers that does as well. I've heard you break down several species of Bigfoot, which, of course, drives some Bigfoot people crazy. They only want to talk about one. Yeah. And as well as uh, mountain giants and, and trolls I've heard you talk about. Of course, we talked about the little people on Wes's show. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Like, How did you break down... I mean, you didn't personally do it. I think it's you and a number of other researchers, right, broke down these different sort of subspecies of Bigfoot or, or different different species of Bigfoot. How Some varieties of Bigfoot. Yeah. yeah, that's sort of a, uh, you know, <laughs> that's a sort of a tenuous uh, thing that's going on right there. We've got, what, four or five different researchers that have sort of subcategorized them, and they don't, for the most part, categorize them the same, which makes it more complicated and confusing. It depends on which researchers you're following. The Bigfoot Outlaws categorization system, I should say, is pretty much identical to mine for the first three. And then beyond that, they're sort of question mark territory. And I go a step further and say there's actually a fourth type. But, you know, part of this is that Bigfoot is going to vary as much as humans would vary. They're going to vary depending on their environment. If they're down in the south, they're going to be more heat resistant. If they're up in the north, they're going to be more cold resistant. The ones that are living in these areas for many generations, hundreds of years, possibly thousands of years, are going to have those sort of environmental impacts have an effect on their physiology and their look and everything because it's, you know, how do they have to adapt to survive the environment? Just an example is animals. Let's take bears, for example. You get down 
the southern part of the U.S., bears are not very big. You get up by the Canadian border, especially out here where I'm at, a 1,000-pound bear, not out of the ordinary. They get really big. You get up in Alaska, 1,500 pounds. And this holds true for other animals, too. The closer you get up toward the North Pole, the larger the animals tend to be, which has to do with the body mass holding in heat, yada, yada, yada. So you can see that across the continent, you would, have, you would tend to have smaller Bigfoot in the south and more gigantic ones in the north. And there's also going to be other regional differences, just like in isolated human populations centuries ago, a local group that didn't have much outside contact and wasn't doing much breeding with other groups would have a little bit different sort of makeup to the way they looked. Maybe their noses would be different. They might have a little different color skin. You know, they might have differences in their hair and eye color and that sort of thing. So to think that across an entire continent that one species would be the same all the way across it is kind of ridiculous and unscientific. Just as an example, a white-tailed deer across North America, there's over 21 distinct sub-varieties just of the white-tailed deer. So Bigfoot being a real critter, there's going to be variations, and there'll be regional and local variations. Here's the thing, though. Even with all these variations that you would expect, some of them are so wide that it's hard to account for it just simply by saying it's a regional or local variation. So it's made a bunch of us who have heard like hundreds or thousands of reports look at all this and go, well, it sounds like these guys here are actually describing something different than these guys over here are. And some of the differences are minor, like we've got the the type 1 and the type 2. The type 1 is more like the uh, classic Patty in the Patterson-Gimlin film. They've got sort of caveman or uh, Native American type face. They either have the nose that's kind of um, like an aborigine sort of flattened, big flat, uh, being been hit by punches too many times, boxer nose spread across their face, or they've got the long, hawkish Native American nose, but they basically look like a human just with hair on their face. Then if you go over to the eastern part of the U.S., especially the upper northeast, some people classify as a type 4, they say it's a caveman-looking thing. But the thing is, you get caveman-looking things from the Pacific Northwest and from California, so I think the only variation there really is how much hair there is on the face. So they're just saying, you know, these ones are less hairy, so they might be or something different. I just think it's a regional variation on a type 1. A type 2 now, on the other hand, seems like they don't get quite as big as the type 1s. You don't usually, uh, I've never heard a report of them as actually having a sagittal crest. Uh, I may be wrong about that, but I haven't heard it. And the other main thing in the description that seems to be different is that they have a much more chimpanzee or ape-looking type face, whereas the type 1s tend to have more of a human-looking face. And, of course, there's going to be variations in each population. And what I've been able to gather from the few reports of people that have seen the really little ones, that they tend to, both type 1s and 2s, tend to look more like a chimpanzee when they're little and then their nose changes as they get bigger. So, again, this is difficult to figure out. And then you've got what I class as a type 3 that some people class actually as a sub-variety of the dog man but it doesn't have anything to do with the dog man. It doesn't have anything in common with it other than it's got a protruding snout. Not long like a German Shepherd or something, more short like a bulldog or something along those lines. And this is what the uh, Micmac Confederation called a Gugwe, Chippewa called the Tuggwe. Cat refers to them as face eaters. So it isn't like they're unknown. A lot of these tribes had names for these things, and it wasn't. Bigfoot. It was something that was like Bigfoot, but way more dangerous and different. So that's where I get my type 3 from. And then the type 4, as I class it, has uh, been confused with the whole Wendigo legend and seems to actually be tied up in it. 
with the lenticosychosis cabin fever being one side of it where people go crazy and eat other people. And then the other side of it being that apparently there's another sub-variety of Bigfoot that are subarctic that are exclusively carnivorous. And uh, actually the first encounter I ever had was with one of these things at about 40 feet in broad daylight. So I got a real good look at it and it gave me the grin. So I got to see all of its choppers and they were not giant square chiclets like human teeth or like regular Bigfoot is usually described with. He had a set like like a bear trap <laughs> with fangs. It was scary as hell. Uh, so that's a carnivore. There's no doubt in my mind that thing is not designed to eat plants. That's a meat eater. And according to the far northern tribes up there, yeah, they, they live up near the Arctic Circle. And you usually don't see them very far south because they can't take the heat at all, apparently. So when you do get reports of them, it's always tied up in these legends with blizzards and stuff, which, you know, since the cold doesn't affect them, I think they use blizzards as a good method to cover their tracks and their noise when they're hunting. But most of the reports you hear about them in the northern U.S. are these type of critters going back a couple, two, three centuries even. They're always appearing in the winter. I saw mine when it was 20 below and there had just been a cold snap three weeks earlier. And the county next to us had an all-time record low of 52 below. So here was this brutal Arctic air mass coming down. And guess who's following it? Oh, let's go to these southern areas I can't usually get to and have some deer down there. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons it's so rarely seen because there's so few people up in the, the climate that it prefers that you usually don't have humans running across them. And when they do, then you don't have a report. Uh, I've only actually found two other people, and they've both been on my show, that have had an encounter with one of these things, and they saw the light class as a Type 4S southern variety, which is also the Iroquois Confederation called the Junosqua which I've been able to, through looking at legends from all the Indian tribes on that side of the country, been able to figure out that it's identical to the Wendigo. The two names are interchangeable because the descriptions of the Wendigo and the descriptions of what the Genosco are doing were the same thing, so they're talking about the same critter. So I just use the Genosco name as the type 4S or southern, and then Wendigo for the type 4N or northern. The only difference I've been able to see so far is that the type 4S and toward uh, brown or reddish, dark type color. And the, the legends of the uh, Type 4 and Wendigo seem to be that they have, as you would expect in a subarctic environment, they tend toward white or gray color, so they blend in really well. Um, which is creepy as hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, with that, that being a given, uh, when I saw one of these things in 1972, you know, okay, there's something out there, some kind of weird monster, what the hell is it? Well, in that time, the only thing you could find about this stuff was a Patterson-Gimlin film. And I saw that, and I went, well, there's some kind of big monkey-looking thing running around the woods. Maybe that's what I saw. The face on this thing doesn't look anything like it, and it was the wrong color, and the hair's the wrong length, and yada, 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 but it's something like it. And then when I did more research, I started realizing that, you know, it seems to me, at least, from everything I've been able to figure out, that Patty really was real. That is a type one and completely different than what I saw. So there's at least two types there. And then when I started talking to a bear on the Bigfoot outlaws to get more information from down south, where they're seeing a lot of the type twos, and they had already classed the difference between a type one and a type two. I went, well, they know there's two types down there. The type two that they're looking at is not what I saw. So there's at least three. And then these other more recent uh, reports of Dogman getting mixed up with this other thing and I had done more research into the Wendigo, at which point I ran across this information on the Dudley, which is apparently not the same thing. doesn't look the same. 
but you will find more of them in the lower 48. The Wendigo is pretty much a horror that the Canadians have to worry about. <laughs> Unfortunately, we do have face eaters down here in the lower 48. They're very rare. You don't run into them very often. They're not going to be around civilized areas. you got to kind of go out in the sticks to unfortunately run into them. So, yeah, something you definitely don't want to run into, and no, I don't ever want to see one. Seeing a Type 4 and a Type 2 is enough for me. Type 1 would be fun. They're not usually dangerous unless they're throwing a tree at you or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was someone, uh, I was on another podcast, and they were just kind of reading listener questions, and they said, like, you know, what, what wouldn't you want to see as far as, like, paranormal stuff? And I thought about it. I said, it really depends on the distance for all of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what kind of armament I have. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm far enough away, I'll go ahead and take a look at anything. But up close and personal, yeah. that changes the equation. Yeah, I'd be willing to get within about, you know, about two, three hundred yards of a mountain giant, provided I have a big supply of Laws rockets handy. Other right. than that, no way, I'm not doing it. <laughs> right, yeah. Now, mountain giants don't seem to be related to Sasquatch. Uh, you know, that's sort of the question that's going on there. In fact, I found more to tie them in to trolls than I have to tie them in with Bigfoot. They seem to be more something closer to a giant or a troll. The information I've been able to get on trolls, reliable information, not mythology, they do get that big and even bigger. There's apparently several varieties of those things, too. But, again, this is like most people don't think that there is such a thing, just like they don't think there is such a thing as Bigfoot. And, you know, right. well, numerically, Bigfoot have them way, way, way outnumbered. There's a lot of Bigfoot. There's very few trolls. Yeah. Even according to mythology, trolls live a really long time, so they don't need to breed very often, and there doesn't need to be very many of them. You have this sort of general population who doesn't believe in Bigfoot. Then you have these, the Bigfoot people who, I mean, we, we drive them nuts talking about this stuff. I, I don't know if they've ever contacted you, but I, I've, I've been contacted. It's just like, don't talk about these other things. Like, you, you're muddying the water, and I don't care. For me, it's like, no, this is, you know, this is what people are reporting. This is what people are seeing, so I'm going to talk about it. Yeah. So you have this sort of, and I don't know how they compare, like, in the Bigfoot world. I don't know if they make up the majority or if other people do who are now recognizing Dogman seems to be really big right now. I have a lot of questions as to how many Dogman sightings are misreported Sasquatch sightings. Like you said, there there yeah. is there is a type that has a almost like a baboon kind of face of Sasquatch. And yeah, that's that would be what I class as the type three, the gugwe tugwe or face eater. Yeah, and really the difference is pretty easy to figure out on those things because okay, it has a snout. Does it have? human-looking legs or dog-looking legs. If it's human-looking legs, it's not a dogman. Does it have a tail? If you got a tail, it's a dogman. If it doesn't have a tail, it's not a dogman. Right. If all you right. can see is the upper part of its body, it's not going to have a really long snout, and it's not going to have ears like a German Shepherd. They have ears sort of on the side of their head, and some of them have like little tufts of hair on top of them, and there's been reports of them even with like little protrusions above their forehead. But they don't have the the big German Shepherd type ears. That's a dogman thing. So really, it's not that different, difficult to tell the difference if you got a good look at it. Yeah, but dogman's kind of hot right now. Oh yeah. I just wonder if some of these sightings are getting turned into dogman sightings. And in fact, I know of one where a researcher turned it into a dogman sighting because I reported it as a dogman sighting because that's what this researcher had reported as. And the person who witnessed it got very angry and contacted me. That, that, I didn't say I saw a dog, man, and, and like really kind of took me to task. I said, sorry, I was reporting what this other person had published. I will correct it. 
But uh, yeah. so it, I mean, I think it happens. I think for people's agenda. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, I was. I actually had a guest on my show who had been on someone else's show, and they had done the encounter as if it was a dogman encounter. She didn't think it was. And then after I came out with the stuff on the Type 3, she contacted me and said, I think I saw what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And she gave me the details on it. And I went, yeah, you saw what I'm talking about. You didn't see a dog man. You want to do my show? Let's, you come on my show now. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, see, luckily I got to this person first. They saw what, by all accounts, would have been a devil monkey. It was in the South. Yeah. It was very baboon-like. It happened to be albino or white in color. And I said, and there's another thing that could be mistaken for a dog man because they look so much like them. The only variation being that they just don't get that big. They get like you know large bamboo baboon size. They don't right. get huge like a dog man. Does. Yeah, exactly. But I told him, I said, someone's going to tell you. They're going to tell you you saw a dog man. They're going to tell you what you saw. Stick to your guns. You know what you saw. Like you know, you're describing what looks yeah. like a, a baboon. Not a dog, you know, and sure enough, I, I believe somebody contacted them afterwards. Like, Did you think it was a dog, man? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think I've irritated a few people on their channels where they put out episodes where they had a report on there, and they, you know, some of them will class it as a Bigfoot, and some of them will class it as a dog, man. And I'll listen to the details, and then I'll post a comment underneath and go, Well, I'm not saying that it was a Gugly, but it was a Gugly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that a great picture of that, the Beast of Seven Shoots, at least yeah. appears yeah, that, to be that. that is a good one. Yeah. I actually know somebody up in Canada who got to investigate that one. Um, they were there in a, there was a separate, different, can't really get into the details because they would get in trouble, but they were actually there looking into something else the same day that this happened. And after it happened, they contacted the person that had the pictures, and he had taken like 110 pictures or something, and they were all just sort of, he was walking along this area and just snapping random pictures, and that's how he caught the thing by accident. And there had actually been a report from the park of people having their dog taken away from their campsite by something that picked up their full-size poodle and walked off with it. And this was the same day that the guy snapped that random picture of something holding what looked like a full-size poodle. Butt. It sure does look like he's holding a poodle-looking dog. Yeah, and, and the description from the terrified campers was exactly what was captured in that picture. It was a Gugly-type critter. Wow. You can just look up Beast of Seven Shoots and that picture will come up. It's a pretty impressive picture. Yeah, it is. And that's not the only one I've seen. There's a few other ones out there. There's a profile shot of one sitting down in a, a ditch taken from between a couple trees, and, and you can't really see anything other than the black outline of a baboon-looking thing. And it's far enough north that I'm guessing it's a gugly and it's not a devil monkey, but I could be wrong about that. You know, it's hard to tell the scale on the thing. What's interesting, though, is I took the actual original photograph and I put it on photo process and tried to bring up the detail on it just to see if this was like a cardboard cutout that had been spray-painted or something. Mm-hmm. And when you got up the detail, you could see the eyes and everything. I mean, this is no cardboard cutout. Whatever it was, it was real. Wow. Um, you know, devil monkey or gugwee, one or the other, but it wasn't anything that's supposed to be running around North America. The gugwee, is it upright most of the time? I know. Yeah, that's the report that you get on them. Um, I actually haven't heard, I'm not sure if I've ever heard a report of them running on all fours. They probably can Mm-hmm. Um, but usually all the reports that I've heard of them, the sightings that people have seen them, they're walking on two, two legs. They're bipedal. Hmm. That's interesting, because at least the devil monkey reports that I've seen, they seem to be on all fours a lot. 
Yeah, they haul around four-wheel most of the time, it seems like, from the reports on them. And usually it's not just like one. There's a bunch of scary reports from up in Alaska of hunters being attacked by groups of these damn things, and they're coming through the treetops to get at them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no thanks. No thanks is right. Yeah, there's certain areas up there, apparently the locals know where these things live, and they just don't go hunt there or anything. And, you know, auto-staters, they encourage them to not go hunt there. And when they do go anyway, sometimes they don't come back. So, you know, there's a bunch of that. Alaska's just creepy. I wouldn't even live up there. I hear too much from the locals up there. <laughs> you know, Montana's scary enough. Well, I'll just keep the mountain giants and the Bigfoot that we got over here, and you guys can have the rest of the stuff up there. I want to live up there. Mountain giant prints are really rare. They do come up, though. Yeah, they do. It seems like about every four or five years, maybe, uh, you get a, a good report with a good picture, and... Sometimes they get more than one track. I had somebody last uh, fall that thought they, they had one in their yard, and they sent me a picture of it, and it was, uh, what, 28 inches. Wow. It was in the snow. This was, like, sort of behind their house. They had Bigfoot around there, and the Bigfoot sort of used their backyard as a travel corridor. And, um, you know, it was one one track, and the snow was melting. It was that time of the year, and they had, like, another partial one that was melted off, and there was, like, uh, really hard ground the forward part of the track set beyond that, so you could just see, like, there were indentations, sort of, but too vague to be worth anything. And, you know, again, with a situation like that, I look at it and go, well, there's just, there's only one track, so it's like, it's hard to do much of anything with that, you know. And I did an interview with a witness and everything, and we both kind of decided that it just wasn't even worth releasing because people were just ripping the pieces. Yeah. And it's just one track. You know? So they'll just say, well, you, you fake one track, so, and it's like, I don't want them to, go through that kind of misery over one track, you know. But, yeah, it was a pretty impressive 28-inch track in the snow. <laughs> mm-hmm. They can look like four-toed tracks, right? I'm going by memory here. I read a book on it a while back. They they have a, a toe to the side or something, don't they? Well, that's sort of the question on them here. If they actually have just four toes or if they have, like, an outrigger toe displayed out to the side like the Pongids exhibit, their feet are hand-shaped, basically. Mm-hmm. So they can grab onto things with their feet just like they can with their hands, and that's an adaptation for being up in the trees. Well, mountain giants aren't going to be up in the trees. They're way too big. So having long since become too big to be climbing around in the trees, you can expect if they did have that adaptation, that it's being used for something else at this point. And it's kind of interesting when you find tracks of them, it's four toes, and the toes all look to be about the same size. So there's no hallux in evidence there, which makes me wonder if as has been postulated by others, that when they walk along, they're walking along basically with just the four toes at the front of their foot most of the time, and if they go over uneven or soft ground, they'll sort of, like, deploy the the fifth big hallux toe out to the side, which, if you think of it, it'd be kind of like a a backhoe putting out outriggers before it starts digging or something to stabilize it. And with a critter that big and heavy, it would probably be a handy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we don't know for sure, and all the few tracks that have been found of them None of them really show an outrigger fifth toe. They just show the four toes that are all about the same size and spread out sort of in a little bit of a taper across the front of the foot. It doesn't really show like a top side or a bottom side of the front of the toes of the foot like a human foot does it. It's angled. This is sort of curved across the front like a bear's foot or, uh, you know, a mountain lion or something like that where you get that curve across the front of the foot but it's just four equal-sized toes. And we found a track up in Coloma that was about 15 and a half inches and it was four-toed. And one of the tracks, it looks like a fifth toe came out. 
and plop down just for a second. It's like barely visible unless you really bring up the detail. You can't even hardly see where it touched. And it's interesting if this was in like a little mud puddle where it had stepped in, maybe you thought it was going to slip or something, so it put that fifth toe down for a second. Now, he followed this track line and saw a bunch of these tracks, and they were all four-toed. Wow, so, so this was a trackway. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, he was following a trackway. At first, he thought it was a bear. So this is interesting because he was up there by himself. He wasn't a Bigfoot researcher. He had his dog Curly with him, and he was camping for a couple of days at the old abandoned ghost town of Coloma, spring 2014. And he got up in the morning. It had been raining a whole night before. Uh, it was misty, foggy. And for some reason, the dog didn't want to go outside with him. He didn't even want to go outside to go to the bathroom. So he just left the dog in the camper, and he took a walk around with his camera because he's a photographer and wanted to get some cool pictures of the area. And uh, he had a creepy feeling he was being watched, and he was going down the road. Of course, it had been raining for the previous day, so it was a little bit muddy, and it would hold tracks. And he noticed there was a track line, so good-sized grizzly had been walking down the road. After he followed it for a little ways, he started looking at it a little more closely, and he realized there wasn't any front footprints. So then he got more curious, and he looked at it a little bit closer yet, and went, whatever this is, it's just walking on two feet, and its feet are, you know, 15 and a half, 16 inches long. And he knew what Bigfoot was. He had heard of it before. Of course, he didn't really believe, you know. He, he was one of those people that was, like, cautiously skeptical. Bigfoot probably exists, but I haven't seen one, so I don't know. Right. Yeah. Um, so right away he got this thing in his head that's like, this might even be Bigfoot tracks. So we followed him and really looked at him for a little while, and he took pictures of a couple of them. And then he got a feeling, really strong feeling, that he was being watched, and he got it started creeping out because, you know, like, here's these Bigfoot tracks. I'm out here without my dog who wouldn't go out of the camper, and I'm getting this feeling something's watching me. And he turned and took a picture in the bushes of where he felt like something was watching him from, and then he just turned around and went back to the camper again. I've actually looked at that picture and tried to uh, see if I could find anything in there. And sure enough, I had a couple of people with better software than I've got look at it and go, yeah, there's a face right there. And they brought up the detail on it, and the face has tusks on it, like a uh, mountain giant's supposed to have. Wow. Uh, so that's kind of creepy. <laughs> and then there's the account out of Okefenokee, Florida in 1829 where there was apparently a mountain giant. Because, yeah, that little detail usually gets left out, four-toed tracks, 18 inches long, nine inches across. This is a two-week-long incident here where a kid and one of his friends were deeper in the Okefenokee than they usually could go because it was so dry that year. It had been dry for two or three years, so they could get way deep in there. And they found this track line that just scared the living hell out of them. So they came back to town and told the local tough, you know, trappers and hunters and stuff, hey, we found monster tracks back there, described them. And, of course, the yeah, 1820s, this is, you know, Daniel Boone period. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we'll go after, we'll go monster hunting. So nine of them toughed up, and they got all the weapons they had. They had their muskets and their sabers and everything else, and they went out there, and they were going to find a monster. And apparently it took them a few days to even find where the track line was. And then they started following it, and they set up camp, and they were, like, cleaning their weapons and doing a little bit of shooting to get ready for the next day. And that attracted the attention of the monster who promptly attacked them. And they all started shooting at it and stabbing it and whatnot, and five of the nine got killed, their heads ripped off, before they laid low the monster. And, you know, to put this in perspective, your common gun there, single-shot uh, musket, uh, you know, if you got a Kentucky long rifle, that's really deadly. If you got a, uh, you know, one of the leftovers from uh, the previous wars, you're talking about anywhere between 58 and 69 caliber. So this is like a small cannon. It's throwing out a big chunk of lead, 
a little pitiful, you know, 223, 5.56 round, like our modern-day sporting rifles throw. This thing will knock an elephant down. So, yeah, nine guys shooting at it, yeah, that would drop a mountain giant. Well, then the survivors went back to town. One of the gentlemen actually swore out a statement to this effect to the town uh, recorder. And the town recorder went out to the site, saw the corpse, watched him measure it, 13 plus feet, 13, 14 feet, in his, in his site, saw him do it, and then went back to town and reported the whole thing. And this got carried by newspapers as far away as Indiana. So this one was heavily documented and might be a real story. But then there's a little floor incident that everybody reports, you know, like it's gospel, that there's nothing to back it up. Yeah, and that's the one uh, supposed to be a, a military guy, right, Lafleur? Yeah, he was supposed to. Uh, Joshua Lafleur was supposed to have been a, a military uh, captain, um, and this was like in 1855. And um, you know, it's like to me, it's a good example of the sort of stuff that H.P. Lovecraft liked to do with his stories, where he'd make up a good monster story and he'd throw in some actual details from an actual place and actual history. So if you went and looked it up, it would scare you all over again. Right. But that doesn't mean that it was true. You know, that's like saying that uh, Winston Churchill and uh, Adolf Hitler fought a saber duel with the death, and Winston Churchill killed them, and then saying, well, I can back that up because they both actually existed and they were enemies. Well, that doesn't right. prove anything. Let's talk tree structures for a minute. Sure. This is something that I wrestle with because I think a lot of what people show looks like snow breaks to me. But, mm-hmm. but then there's some that certainly aren't. And and I've come to see some recently where I'm looking at them and I'm like, yeah, something with hands did this. Now, I can't say it was a big yeah. I can only say something with hands did it. It's They're bent around and locked together in such a way that it had to be done with something with hands. And the, the question then becomes, I guess kids might go out in the woods and mess around and do that. But why? I mean, you know what I mean? It seems... Yeah. The, the, kids barely... well, the ones that I find to be best evidence are the ones that, like, Without heavy equipment, you could not build it. Mm-hmm. It had to be made by something. It's not natural. And without a, a friggin' logging helicopter or a crane, you can't make it. Those are the ones that I find to be convincing, and I try and document those when I find them. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you. A lot of people post, like, you know, all oh, this twig snap, Bigfoot did it. You know, well, it's friggin' half-inch thick, and it's shoulder height. A bear could have done it. A horse could have done it. An elk could have done it. A deer could have done it. Lots of things could have done that. It could have been just natural. Something else fell across it and it snapped, and you're not looking what's on the ground below it. But when you start finding things like, you know, the back structure he found up in the Skulkahoe, which is two entire lodgepole pines, like 60 feet long, placed into an X structure, and they weren't pushed over. They weren't from there. Something had picked them up, moved them up on top of this ledge, and put them into this position. And each one of those is minimum three tons. Well, you tell me what the hell could do that. Right. There ain't no team of people moving it around. Yeah, I found one in Michaud Forest that was, the way I put it is, if people did it, it was a team of people with ladders, and this is on the side of a mountain. So who's hauling ladders yeah. on, on the side of a mountain? Yeah, It was uh, a TP structure. Some of the trees were alive. Some of them were dead. They didn't fall from stumps. They were brought in and laid there, and one of them was completely upside down. So it's, you know, the top yeah. of the tree is facing downward. Each one of these is more than I could lift. So yeah. I'm looking at this and I'm saying these did not fall like this. There's no way these fell like this. If this is done by people, it was a team of people and they had to have ladders. So that yeah. that was one of the first ones that I ever saw that, that really got, was like, okay, all right, there's something to this. 
I thought there was before as well, but that really got me got me looking at it. Oh, I know what you're saying. Yeah, you see a lot of it and you go, that could be, but I could, you know, think of other ways it could be made. And then you see ones that are like, there's no way. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, okay, there's definitely something to this because some damn thing made that. And it's gigantic. What moved it? Yeah. Know? Now, the ones I've found around here are smaller. For the most part, I have found one, and I've stopped sharing these pictures because... There was one particular group on Facebook. People were sharing uh, th- these tree breaks, and and a lot of them were just like, like a tree, like literally, like just broken, you know, uh, six eight feet off the ground, which could be a snow break. I mean, there's no, it's just broken and leaning there. And I found what I thought was this really impressive set of very large trees, and they, I mean, they could have fallen in this way, but my thing was like, how? How did they perfectly fall like this? You know. I mean, if yeah. it, it just didn't make sense. And then it's, people were like, oh, I've seen that in the woods before. That's nothing. And I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm not posting any more pictures. So that kind of soured me on the tree break thing for a little while. But now, again, after seeing that one in Michaud, and then recently it was a smaller one. It was about my height. And again, this could be done by people, but I just I ask why. Who's, who's doing this and why? Yeah. It was a dead tree laying on top of a living one that was bent around and locked in this, in this kind of teepee structure it was it, like i said it's something with hands you know that that's all i could yeah. say is something with hands did it could have been a person i think some i, I guess are territory markers some might be a, a kind of hunting blind these are just my guesses but i do think some are symbols in some way that, that are they're, they're they are one of the things that i've been centering my attention on and i do a lot of research on tree structures because I, hey they're making them three miles away this is easy to research so I've been not only like documenting them, but trying to figure out what they mean. And I had several people give me good leads that I could go and actually try and verify the trial and error. Does this hold up? And the one of them that's been 100% so far is their tree snaps as markers for trails. They don't leave a trail like a deer or something does because they just by habit apparently won't walk the same path twice. Even if they're going the same way, They'll step a few feet off to the side and take a few steps, and then they'll go back on the trail and take a few steps, and then they'll step off maybe to the other side and take a few steps. So you find these really weird paths that look sort of like a human path or something, and they're beaten for like 15, 20 feet, and then there's no path for 15 or 20 feet, and then it's beaten for 15 or 20 feet, and then there's no path for 15 or 20 feet. And some of these I've actually found bone markers, too, where they'll leave pieces of bones stuck in crotches of trees or crammed under branches or something like that about every 100 yards. So if you're actually on the trail, you'll notice it. But if you're not, you'd never see it. Hmm. But the one thing that we've noticed is that their tree snaps always lead to something. They'll have a snap, you know, it'd be like head high for us. And apparently that's like probably a little bit above the waist for them when they're snapping it off. They're just reaching their hand, snapping it. The ones that have a twist on them, those are the ones to really look at. Because that's not normally natural. Even if it's snow loaded, it usually won't twist when it snaps. Right, yeah. So pay right. close attention to those ones. And the, the end where the tree is laying on the ground, you can pretty much draw a straight line from where the snap is down to where the end of the tree is on the ground. Take a compass heading off that, walk that direction, you'll run into something else. You'll either find another structure, another trail, whatever. We actually documented that the last time we did a, a Paddy Canyon run last fall, and we found an all-new snap that they had at the bottom of this huge hillside structure and went, okay, this one's pointing in a different direction. The one on the other side of the ridgeline is pointing toward this structure. One at the top of the ridge line is pointing toward the structure. 
The one at the bottom of the structure isn't pointing the same direction. It's pointing to the southeast. Let's go that way. And there was no evidence of a trail or anything. We just took a compass heading, went D-line southeast. Came down to the bottom of the ridge line. There was like a little slough down there with about three-foot-tall grass. Got out in the middle of the three-foot-tall grass. And there's this little square structure. It looks like somebody was building a little log cabin three sections high with this beaten-down grass. No evidence of a trail going any direction around it. So we continue going past that. We go up until we get to the road. We go across the road. We go up the steep embankment with some really looked a lot like Bigfoot footprint impressions in the uh, the grass and going up the embankment and got up on the hillside above it, maybe, you know, 100 yards away from where we had found the other thing. And there's a larger version of the same thing, a square structure, multiple levels, laying on the ground, exactly straight line from where that snap was. You know, I found this little area where they apparently have the little squatchlets making little mini structures and playing all the time by taking a heading from another tree snap that was about a half a mile away on the other way far side uh, of another ridge line. It was aiming right at it. And instead of walking straight there, I just went, okay, it's over there. Let's go. Let's ride over there in the car and then walk up that ridge line. And when we got there, bingo, bango, there it was. And it just it really seems like it's always aiming towards something. It's some area that they're habituating. It's a little trail that they're following. It's aiming toward an area where they go hunting. It's aiming where they, uh, they get water at. It seems like it's always pointing towards something. And it's the ones to watch are the ones that are snapped and twisted. That's They're marking something there. It's a trail that they're walking, and it's probably going towards something. Do you put any meaning to the, the kind of glyph idea? That they're leaving. I think there might be something to it, but I haven't actually looked into it. Uh, you know, I'm just too busy looking at the upright ones at this point to start watching all the ground scatter too yet. When I'm looking at the ground, I'm finding tracks. That's what I'm looking for because I'm near a structure, so they're around there at some point. So I'm looking to see if there's any recent tracks that I can find. And that's where I usually pull up most of them other than long riverbanks or streams and stuff. Mm-hmm. All right, Duke, we're uh, coming to the end of our time for the main show here, but for our patrons, we'll have some more with Duke. Everyone can find you at World Bigfoot Radio on On YouTube. YouTube, Yep, I'm also setting up a new uh, support group on MeWe, which will be World Bigfoot Central, and we will very soon have a website with the same name, World Bigfoot Central. And I will put links to the YouTube channel, and I'll make sure to put them in the show description. Alrighty. Thanks for taking your time. Thanks for talking with us tonight. My conversation with Duke will continue. We did a patron show where we would continue our discussion on Bigfoot and Duke talks about some of his personal encounters and more. If you're a patron, you'll get to hear that. I'll get that up for you guys as soon as possible. Another way you can help support the show is by supporting my various artistic endeavors if you're interested in that sort of thing. My latest album, which will be out in June, is called Fallow. If you like Stone Breath, I think you'll like this. It's very sparse acoustic folk music like Stone Breath. I cover a lot of similar subject matter to what I cover here on Strange Familiars. That is available at stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Right now, there is a physical edition available. It's two CDs, a 5-inch lathe-cut record, and a patch. If you go to the merch section 
on Bandcamp. You can see it there, or it's under the Fallow page on Bandcamp. That's a limited edition of 30 copies. I think at this point there's two left. So if you want that lathe cut record, jump on that now. Along with the Fallow CD, you get the Haint lathe cut record and another CD called Entity Drift. And that is all of the sort of dark ambient and drone pieces I've done as soundtrack and background for Strange Familiars. So that's definitely related to the podcast. If you like the kind of ambient music I've made for the backgrounds here in Strange Familiars, you can get the long format of that on the Entity Drift CD. Both Entity Drift and Fallow will be available as individual CDs as well, but if you want the package deal with the 5-inch lathe cut record, go check it out. There's two left, maybe less at this point. Stonebreath.bandcamp.com Thanks everybody who supports my music. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts. Music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com If you're on Facebook, look up Strange Familiars Gathering. You can join and interact with other listeners. We put stories up there from the news, interesting YouTube videos, and so forth. I put updates for the show on there and links to different things I'm working on and so forth. That's Strange Familiars Gathering on Facebook. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.